0: Welcome to the Notion Club Podcast, I'm Justin Hall. Today, I'm continuing the Notion Club tradition of our fireside chats just as winter is coming to a close and spring beginning. And in the spirit of waking up from a long nap, I thought I'd do a little spring cleaning myself among all the clutter of our culture. Anyone who knows me understands that I never sleep on the issues of our cultural rot the entrenched relativism and nihilism that is actively corroding the best of us. So consider this the first of many alarms, the first of many wake-up calls. This is Conviction 101, an intro to belief. This is episode 11 of season two of The Notion Club. I noticed this bizarre phenomenon in my junior year of college, and once I had noticed it, I could never not notice it whenever it happened ever after. During class, when any other student would make a comment to the class or the professor or answer a question, they would always preface their comment by saying, in my opinion, or they would say, to me it seems like... Or perhaps more simply, and even more commonly, I feel like, etc. For example, in a music history class, a sprightly and optimistic, maybe even somewhat courageous, if not naive, student might say, I feel like Beethoven really does deserve to be programmed, even celebrated. Or in an American literature class, a more informed, shall we say, student, Uh, might describe a Native American raid on a Puritan settlement by saying, to me, it seems like the Puritans really got what was coming to them. Both examples are versions of statements I've heard in past classes. What struck me as bizarre was not so much the phrases themselves as their ubiquitousness, and not simply their ubiquitousness, but their ubiquitousness in the context of higher education, which is to say that here, at a university, it is universal practice for students to frame their dialogue in the language of relativism. So it's not that something is true, it's that it seems like it's true to me, or that I feel like it's true, or that it's true in my opinion. If you're a student, try paying attention the next time any of your classmates raises their hand to make a comment and see if this is not the case. Like me, once you notice it, it will never go unnoticed again, nor should it. More importantly, whether you're a student or not, observe yourself. How often do you use this language of relativism? what's the big deal you might say maybe that's just how people talk it doesn't necessarily mean anything or maybe the students are just being humble when addressing their professor maybe it's simply a show of respect and deference for a much more knowledgeable elder if you think any of this then consider the absurdity of this language when attached to more obvious truths for example I feel like two plus two equals four. Or, to me it seems like the sun is bright. Or, in my opinion, the Pope is Catholic. Now you might point out that there are gradations of certainty, that clearly the statement two plus two equals four is unequivocally certain while the value of Beethoven is not. One is fact, the other opinion and fair enough, except that even these statements are not beyond our capacity to doubt. You should look up sometime if you have five minutes to waste Uh, the recent online debacle over the insistence by some woke disciples, many of them with PhDs, that two plus two does not necessarily equal four, that two plus two can sometimes equal five. It's a matter of context. Likewise, according to a manual called Dismantling Racism in Mathematics from an organization funded by the Bill Gates Foundation, quote, The concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false. Upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuate objectivity, unquote. I have to say, I am tempted to ask, if there isn't objectivity, how could any concept be unequivocally false? But there is still the question of degrees of certainty. You can convict a man of murder and lock him up in prison for the entirety of his life if you are sure of his crime by a degree of certainty that is only beyond reasonable doubt, not beyond the shadow of a doubt there is always the capacity to doubt, always room for uncertainty. You might say doubting is one of the great human traditions. But imagine the jury returning and the foreman saying, we feel like the defendant is guilty, or to us it seems like the defendant is guilty, so off to the gallows with him. Would you buy it? I don't think so, nor would I, nor would the defendant. But what do you have in the case of a real conviction? You have a degree of certainty on the basis of evidence and reason, and you have consensus between the jury of 12 reasoning minds. We consider this enough certainty to decide the destiny of a human being, whether they are locked away for life or even executed, or whether they deserve freedom. Their fate hangs in the balance, relies utterly on the convictions of a handful of ordinary people. That word, conviction, is an important word. You might say it is the noun form of the word convince. And it's not accidental that it shares a twin definition, one as a legal declaration, the other as a resolute belief. To be convicted of something is to be convinced of it, persuaded, indeed, gripped body, soul, and mind. To be convicted is to be entrapped, like a prisoner in a cage. And perhaps it is this association that causes us to be not a little turned away by it. But I want to show, or to hint at, the better reality, which is that in conviction, in resolute belief, There is freedom for the human spirit, entirely unlike the aimlessness, the waywardness, the despair of a soul without direction and tossed about by every wind. Tie yourself to the mast, and you will not be tossed about by any storm. Back to the university students for a moment. It is obvious that these students lack any hint of conviction. Perhaps that sounds like too strong of a statement. Maybe we'd be more comfortable if I said, I feel like these students lack conviction. Seems to me. That's my opinion, at least. Why have we come to be so allergic to absolute statements, especially in a university, the place of all places, where once upon a time the truth was upheld as a sacred ideal and reality? Look, sometime, upon the coat of arms of Harvard University. On its shield, there are three open books, a trinity. On each of the books is etched a single syllable of a three-syllable word, as though to accentuate every element of that word. Veritas. Truth. That word is, at least as of this moment, still the motto of Harvard University. Or, look to the motto of the University of Cambridge, Hincalucum et Popula Sacra, from here, light and sacred draughts. In other words, from this place we gain enlightenment and precious knowledge. Or, look to the University of Oxford, Dominus Illuminatia Mea, the Lord is my light, an ascent To the highest of realities that the only illumination the only way of seeing comes from something far above me or my opinions or looked to yale university looks at veritas light and truth but also these hebrew names the urim and thummim, which if you've read the old testament you will remember as the means by which god revealed his will to the high priest and through the high priest to his people. Already, these words are dusty relics of the past, soon to be graffitied, if not blotted out entirely. Already, they bear no relation to what goes on behind their shields. They are like the ghostly traces of letters on a house, the letters of the name of their owner, who has long since moved out and taken the letters with him. Soon the traces themselves will fade, they're empty. But of course we have been taught, by these same universities of illumination, that words are meaningless, and truth is what you make it. Throughout the course of history, philosophers have been striving to discover the one certainty that can make sense of the universe. The pre-Socratics tried to discover which one material substance is the unity of all things. Is it water? Fire? Dust? Air? Could water be the unifying principle, the substance out of which all things are made? After all, water does appear to take every form. Liquid, of course. Solid, when frozen. Vapor, when evaporated. But then another philosopher peered into a stream of water, ever flowing and always changing, and concluded that the unifying principle of reality was not a substance, but change itself, perpetual becoming. Almost precisely 2,000 years later, after unceasing dialogue and debate and hypothesizing and theorizing and not even yet arriving at that certainty, a man by the name of Descartes came to the conclusion that certainty could be found in the very act of doubting. I said before that doubt was one of the great human traditions, never better exemplified than in Descartes, who said that because I doubt, I exist. I have the capacity to doubt everything, every statement, every theory, every proposed truth, even mathematical truth, like 2 plus 2 is 4. What I cannot doubt Is doubt itself because in order to doubt doubt I have to doubt which is just a roundabout way of saying that in order to doubt I have to think and so I can be certain if not beyond the shadow of a doubt then within it that I am a thinking thing and in order to think I must exist so you might say doubt is a great human tradition then why shouldn't today's university students take part in it? Why shouldn't we all take part in it, especially if we want to be polite and respectful to each other? We all have our own perspectives, don't we? And yes, I would agree, politeness and respect are ever so important to us now, perhaps the only sacred things that are left. At one time, theology was the queen of the sciences and philosophy her handmaiden. Today, truth is the horror of politeness. The irony, the diabolical irony, is that if it is not true that Dominus Illuminatia mea, if the Lord is not my light, if lux at veritas, light and truth, do not reign over me and over you, then there is no basis for such a thing as politeness, and more importantly, there is no point. Even still, do not be deceived by appearances. In reality, arrogance and snobbery far more often take the form of, in my opinion, than, this is true. The tyranny of my opinion, the dogma of fake politeness and respect, is the cudgel with which we bludgeon each other into submission you will find no worse arrogance than in the student who disagrees based on his feelings about things. Indeed, how could you disagree with that? If I say, I feel like Beethoven deserves to be celebrated, are we truly talking any longer about Beethoven, or rather about my preference for Beethoven? These are two radically different things, Maybe you could respond, sure, but I feel differently. At which point we really are no longer talking about Beethoven. We're talking about something much more trivial. The higher reality of Beethoven is subjugated to the low reality of our personal taste, in which case we might as well be talking about flavors of ice cream. Should it be any wonder to us, then, that the higher realities, like the music of Beethoven, the beacons of light that once were the very lux and veritas of humanity, the things that were quite literally the higher of higher education, that these things are brought crashing down to the debased level of our appetites. And at this rock bottom, Beethoven and Cardi B are equivalent in value. As it happens, that is the same use of the word equivalent as in the statement 2 plus 2 is equivalent to 5, but I'm afraid it's much worse than this, much worse than the reigning of our appetite, which has always been the ruler of human nature ever since that first bite of forbidden fruit in that long-lost paradise. It's not simply that we are freed to each our own tastes and preferences and opinions, It is that we must be freed to only our own tastes and preferences and opinions, and this freedom requires our perpetual affirmations and submissions to the same compulsory freedoms of everyone else. And here we encounter, alongside 2 plus 2 equals 5, another Orwellian equation. Freedom is slavery. In this enslavement, objective reality is non-existent. And if you insist on any objective reality, or simply act like there is such a thing, you are a heretic to be burned at the stake. What triumphs over all the reality we can measure and observe, all first principles and a priori knowledge, is our feeling about reality, our private experience. Take, for example, the trans issue. If a man, who by all appearances and indeed all measure of objective reality is a man, one day makes the claim that he is now a woman because he feels like a woman and has always felt like a woman, then I must, by compulsion, call the man a woman and the him a her. This compulsion is supervised by all the social powers of our culture and, increasing day by day, all the political powers as well. If I do not comply, if I do not violate my own conscience, then they will tug on the chains of my freedom until I am strangled by them. At one time, such a thing would have been unthinkable. When the simple logic of common sense reigned over us, we would have called a spade a spade. As it happens, if you Google search call a spade a spade, the first result is an article asking the question, is it racist to call a spade a spade? Another example of that long-buried relic of the past called common sense, and no doubt buried in a grave dug out by a racist spade, is the old duck test. You remember? If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. And no matter how much the duck quacks, that it is, in fact, a dog, so long as it is quacking, I will not believe it. But here we run into another Orwellian dictum, one that has become a sacred creed. Quote, The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. Unquote. Fail to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears, and you are next in line to be cancelled, that ever-so-polite word that joins the vocabulary of banal evil, like Lenin's innocuous description of the murder of some millions of people as, quote, the liquidation of a class, unquote. Part of the evil of this, and let's call it evil, shall we, is that our language has been subjugated. As Richard Weaver observes, Quote, if words no longer correspond to objective realities, it seems no great wrong to take liberties with words, Unquote. And I would add, if our reality is thus shaped by our words, then it also seems no great wrong to take liberties with our reality. The evil in this is that we have abolished reality itself. We have deposed and beheaded the monarch, which was truth. And this seems like a triumph of liberation to a great many people, this freedom from any high-ruling reality to which we must all be subjects. But this is the liberation of a compass needle from true north. The compass may now spin around in total freedom, but then we have no direction. And what liberation is there in being lost at sea with no hope Of being found. So now our universities, which have long abandoned all service to truth, are filled up with students who cannot for the life of them make any truth claim without couching it in the language of relativism, the same language that has stolen away our true north. What about that enlightenment and precious knowledge as promised by the University of Cambridge 400 years ago? What about the lux at Veritas, the light and the truth? What's happened is that we have been divorced from them. We no longer bear any relation to those high ideals, which now seem to us like fairy tales from a distant past. We are not people governed by principles. We are governed by pleasures, desires, base instincts. The material world is all the reality there is to us, and our desires are the greatest goods. But principles, virtues, abstract truths, these are only shadows of a thought. Consider an example in masking, an example which has become personal to every one of us in the past year. First, I should say that I am not, strictly speaking, an anti-masker. I do on occasion wear a mask if I consider doing so to be consistent with the principle of human dignity. Instead, I consider myself a free-facer, a self-deprecating term maybe, but that's an irony I can appreciate. Masking has given rise to an interesting conundrum, particularly in the Christian community. Christians above all value fellowship, never forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Fellowship together, face to face, is a sacred necessity, and more importantly, it is a commanded one. But regardless of its sacredness and moral necessity, it's been interesting to watch just how quickly so many Christians have considered it disposable, or at least degradable. If Christians meet together at all in person, They no longer meet face to face, but mask to mask. Not me, nor many other Christians who, like myself, consider fellowship indispensably sacred. We will not put a muzzle on fellowship. What's the big deal, you might object. It's just a piece of cloth. And to that, I respond, that is the very question of a practicing relativist. I've heard from many people that my conviction to not wear a mask is illegitimate. From Christians, I hear that it cannot be backed by theology, a curiously naive remark, and that I must unquestionably obey my authorities, and in any case, the only way to show care for other people is to wear a piece of cloth on my face. As I said, I am convicted In the full sense of that word to resist the credulous conformity of mask wearing because i consider it to be an encroachment on many sacred things first the degrading of the sacrosanct image of god second the suffocating of christian fellowship and the degradation of its quality in every conceivable way third the cowardly submission to obvious overreaches of authority and the simultaneous relinquishing of God-given liberties. Fourth, the affirmation of lies. On that last principle alone, I find enough reason. I refuse to affirm what I believe to be a lie. In spite of all the social forces which supervise me, in spite of all their tugging at my chains, I will not violate my conscience. I refuse. I shall not deny the evidence of my eyes and ears. Now, tell me, is this legitimate enough reason? And be honest, if you wear a mask, do you do so on the basis of equally substantial convictions? Or is it simply out of fear? Or worse, out of indifference and apathy? Maybe it's simply easier to go along to get along. After all, what is the big deal? What this conundrum has offered me is a chance to see a schism between two kinds of people, and I make this distinction knowingly at risk of gross overgeneralization. One is a kind of people who are governed by principles. For them, the high ideals of liberty, truth, beauty, the image of God, to name a few, these are not merely philosophical abstractions, but they are looks at veritas, light and truth. They are true north. They are realities worth far more to them than their own physical bodies, and for which they acknowledge many physical bodies have already been sacrificed in history. The other kind are people for whom these high ideals are merely abstract theory. They might agree with such principles intellectually, of course, but then again, these people often separate intellectual from lived experience, especially emotional experience when it comes down to it, they do not think abstract principles are worth the risk of their own well-being, and certainly not the well-being of others. What we are, here and now, triumphs over principles that are universal. Of course, because they do make the separation between intellectual and personal experience, they may well disagree intellectually with that claim. They might say, No, of course, universal principles triumph over what I am here and now. But having said that, the way they act out in the world and their own experience ultimately contradicts that, ultimately contradicts their very own words. One such person said to me recently, well, I understand the philosophical implications of masking. It's only, only that you'll wear one anyway I offered, after all, what's the big deal? I say all of this with the understanding, of course, that masking can be a nuanced issue, but my point is much greater than masking. And to that end, allow me to pause and tell a brief story. Once upon a time, there was a man named Gaius Mucius Scaevola. He was a Roman soldier around 500 BC. At that time, Rome was under siege by an enemy king and Gaius was on a mission to assassinate the enemy king. But before Gaius could succeed in his mission, he was captured and he was brought captive before the king. And then, forced to his knees, he was interrogated. The enemy king demanded to know everything... Of the plots against him and what's more he wanted the surrender of rome rome is surrounded and ill defended the king said but gaius was obstinate and courageous and would not give him anything and so outraged the enemy king ordered a fire to be built and gaius to be burned to death unless he would yield up his information and his precious rome But when the fire had been built, Gaius thrust his right hand into the flames, staring resolutely at the king, without even a grimace on his face, as though it did not pain him at all. And after some time, only until his right hand had burnt to a char, Gaius raised it up to the king, and he said, This, this is the resolve of Rome the ancient historian livy says that the enemy king lars porcena bewildered and intimidated by such conviction immediately sought peace with rome as it happens there is another fable during that same battle against that same enemy king the fable is about a soldier named horatius who, along with two close companions, rushes upon the enemy knowing they will certainly die. And in a famous poem describing that fable, Horatius calls aloud in a cry of final courage, To every man upon this earth death cometh soon or late, And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers? and the temples of his gods. In other words, death comes to all people. Death is a matter of sooner or later. But there is no better way to die than to give your life for the things that you most love and that are most worthy of it, the things that are most sacred and true. But those things are necessarily realities far above the here and now, far beyond you and your preferences and desires and opinions and feelings and all the rest that makes up this subjective little world of you. If you are tempted to dismiss the tales of Horatius and Gaius Musius Scaevola as either fairy tales or fables, understand that what you are actually dismissing is the virtue of conviction itself, the kind of resolute belief that is indeed as bizarre as a mythical creature in this desolate and degraded culture. Why? Because we have lost faith in the things that could possibly make such resolute belief true. More importantly, we have lost our love for such things, and ultimately, conviction is the love that makes it burn. The fire of Gaius Mucius Scyvela is the fire of love for the beauty, the truth, the goodness to which he had given himself entirely. And this is that greater point, which I mentioned before, the truth at the bottom of all conviction. If you are not living for something that is worth your life, then your life is not worth living. For Gaius and Horatius, the legacy of their fathers and the churches in which they met to worship and the vision and the glory of their home, these were not empty memories or hollow monuments. They were as real as the noonday sun and they were worth all their life and most certainly their limbs. We now live in a particularly dark darkness in which such light is not visible to most people. Universities were once the keepers of that light, once taught their students how to kindle it in their own doubting hearts. They once made real to them all those higher things. But now our universities, along with the rest of our culture, teach our students how to snuff it out, how to knock down. The monuments. And the people who should know better, who should love better, stand by watching in complacency, asking, what's the big deal? They are as blinded as the rest, and there is no worse slavery than the slavery of darkness and the bondage of being lost at sea. Truth is that north, to which our compasses pull us. Freedom is that light which lets us see. Where is the lux and the veritas, I wonder? Where is the light and the truth? I ask this in some desperation, but not for myself. For myself, I know. I have found it, or rather, I have been given it. It is, in many senses, the fire of Gaius passed on as a torch. I bear it, I run with it, and I shall relay it to the next torchbearer, whoever will take it and pass on the flame. And that is, of course, only the beginning of wisdom, only the start of conviction, only the first sparks of belief.